This is a Hot Pie Original. But if there's one thing that neuroscience has really taught us is, is critical, you know, probably goes beyond everything else we've talked about. It's, it's nutrition. It's just, it's, well, it's nutrition and exercise. So oh. physical exercise is not only critical for maintaining the health of your body, but also the health of your brain. And um, whether that's, you know, aerobic exercise or high intensity interval training or you know, even endurance, but it seems very clear that all of those have a positive impact on the brain. Uh, and, you know, in the case of, for example, neuropsychiatric disorders, that's as good as or better than uh, the best pharmaceutical treatment. Mm. Wouldn't you just rather, you know, exercise, feel good about yourself and, you know, and your, 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 uh, you know, your mental health is going to improve. So I do that every day. Dr. Michael Platt is the director of the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania. With over two decades of experience as a professor and practitioner in neuroscience, psychology, and marketing, Platt investigates the biological mechanisms that underlie decision-making, team-building, leadership, and marketing. In this episode, we discussed his new book, The Leader's Brain, which investigates the brain science behind enhancing leadership, building stronger teams, decision-making, and innovation. We also talked about developing team cohesion in a virtual work environment, the social brain network, ADD and creativity, and so much more. This was an absolutely fascinating episode. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter, Adaptation. Just go to www.ericquorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost high-performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve. But now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on the show. This is going to be fantastic. Um, when I get started, you have such an interesting background. I mean, you've had a fantastic career in the world of neuroscience. And uh, it seems like you're you're your dive into neuroscience got started though with an interest in monkeys. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I came to neuroscience late. So in fact, I don't even have any paper credentials in neuroscience. So, mm. so my degrees are in anthropology. And the reason that I pursued anthropology is I was super interested in monkeys and, and the similarities between monkeys and humans had always fascinated me ever since I was a kid. So, um, so that, that kind of led me down the path of like, you know, studying monkeys and then trying to figure out what was going on in their heads and, and how that could tell us something about what's going on in our heads. What, uh, what made you decide to start studying the neuroscience of leadership? Like, how did you make the jump from animals to humans? Well, it wasn't really a jump. It was okay. sort of a slow <laughs> glide, you know? Okay. So, you know, my, my, it, it's funny because, you know, the beginning of my career, I was just trying to understand human nature, just kind of what, makes us tick and, you know, what makes some people tick differently than, than others. Some people tick well together and, and some not. And, you know, that led down the course of studying monkey behavior and then studying the monkey brain to try to connect brain to behavior. And then increasingly trying to connect that back to a lot of the big questions I started out with, which is like, you know, what makes a person uh, a good leader? What makes a person make good decisions? How can we help people to be more creative and innovative? Um, and so, 
it's kind of like, you know, I was studying all that from a very mechanistic perspective. And then when I moved back to the University of Pennsylvania and in particular to the Wharton School of Business, that really crystallized for me the opportunity to take all of that, that new knowledge uh, and try to apply it to, I think, what's most relevant uh, for the people we were really educating at Wharton, which are the next generation of business leaders. Mm. I, I love just the ap- applied nature of what you're doing. Uh, because I know for a lot of people out there, when they hear the word neuroscience, they get a little scared. You know, <laughs> they, they think of, oh my gosh, all the, you know, the chemistry and the biology, the brain, like this is just way beyond me. But uh, in your book, you know, the leader's brain, which I absolutely love, it is not scary at all. It's as, as a matter of fact, you make it so accessible uh, that I think people are going to maybe have a different little bit of a view on um, on how they can improve their leadership. But in your opinion, and based off of your research, do you believe that leaders are born or made? Well, like almost everything in life, it's about 50-50. So, you know, it's kind of like there's a pretty strong, uh, you know, biological endowment in terms of what we get from our parents, whether we consider you know, how, how kind of at ease we are connecting with other people or how creative we are, but that's about maybe, maybe half of what you got. And then, you know, then the other half is what you do with it. So, you know, for just about every faculty that's important for leadership, uh, there are things that you can do there. You can literally kind of go to the you know brain gym and exercise those different, um, those different traits and capabilities and, and you can improve. So you know, that's one feature of the human brain that, um, you know, really stands out in terms of, of neuroscience of the last hundred years is how flexible, uh, in fact, the human brain is. So what are some key qualities in a, of an effective leader? And maybe how could somebody that wants to go to the brain gym develop those things? <laughs> yeah. So I think um, from my perspective, one of the most important, if not the most important, is the ability to be, to relate to people, to have high, what we call EQ or emotional intelligence. So the ability to be a good coach and a good communicator to um, to help your people, the people that you're leading, to reach their uh, peak potential, and to and to understand how to put people together onto teams uh, as well that are high functioning. So, so in the book, I, I kind of call that leading with the social brain. So we now know uh, after you know really a series of amazing discoveries in the last 15 years or so. That we have a network in our brains, we often call the social brain network, that is dedicated to managing our connections with other people. And we know that kind of the, the stronger that network is, like the bigger, literally the bigger it is and the better wired up it is, mm. the better you do at relating to other people, you know, the, the more friends and allies you actually have. And, and that's associated with success in, in all domains in life. So then the key question is, well, what can you do to kind of turn that dial up to 11? And, you know, there are some really kind of basic things you can do. So the first and foremost is, is exercise. So get out, use your social brain by interacting with other people and, you know, meet new people, talk to people. You know, when you go to the bodega on the corner, actually interact with, you know, with the people in the store. When you go to the farmer's market, you go to the company picnic, whatever. All those things are working on your social brain. And that's that, you know, kind of what I call that is like, that's sort of the, walking on a treadmill part of exercising your social brain, like it's really good. It keeps it functioning. It's going to tune it up. But if you want to give it like high intensity interval training, which is, you know, really, really, you know, rocking it, you know, then there are specific exercises that you can do. That, that's something we've been working on here in the lab and some applications where you 
uh, go through a methodical intentional process, for example, uh, like five minutes a day of trying to take the perspective of another person quite vividly and, and to describe a situation from through their eyes. And, and that's kind of the hit training uh, for, for the social brain network. And, uh, you know, it, it ends up changing your brain uh, and it changes in a very systematic way that, um, you know, that we think allows you to, uh, get, to be able to read people's minds a little bit better, be able to read people better. And if you, if you can do that, I think you're going to be a better leader. Very interesting. And now in this world of connectivity and technology, when we say communicate, communicate, like we're talking about in-person communication, like how is social media or these these online platforms impacted our ability to, I guess you could say, flex this social brain network? Uh do people really need to get in a room with somebody or get in a Zoom meeting with somebody? Um, I'm just interested because we're there's so much of our, our our relationship building now, right or wrong, is done online. Yeah, I think it's a, this is top of mind for almost everyone because we have been this has been our our interaction for the last year plus. Um, I think that everybody has the sense that, or at least most people have the sense that it's different somehow, even though we've gotten better at it, and I feel like I've gotten better and it's not so uncomfortable as it was before. But we also suffer for, from things like Zoom fatigue. It's just it's just much more difficult, I think, for our brains to kind of, especially if there are a lot of people on the call, to be able to, to spontaneously dial in and pick up the nonverbal cues that people are continuously emitting uh, and which help to guide the conversation, right? And so that's a lot harder, I think, and our brains have to work uh, quite a bit harder, and that's why we get tired. Uh, that's why, you know, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a difficult medium uh, in which to interact. Um, that said, uh, it seems that people do derive some degree of pleasure, uh, some degree of emotional uh, exhilaration, uh, also pain from, you know, interacting on social media, liking, disliking, you know, leaving, getting nasty comments, you know, leaving nasty comments. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about that from an evolutionary perspective because our ancestors weren't doing that. You know, everything was, there was no virtual. It was all in person. And, right. and somehow we've been able to extend ourselves uh, through digitally, right? Through, through, <laughs> through the magic of the internet. Uh, and and uh, connect with people in ways that exploit our social brains and exploit the reward systems in our brains, but but also do so in a really weird way. And uh, you know you see that you know, people it goes awry, like you get FOMO or you get um, people. You know, there's certainly rising uh, anxiety and yes. depression and, and mental health problems associated with all of that kind of interaction, I think for, especially for young people. That's where my brain was going was kids that are missing out. They're engaging so much on social media or through these chat rooms or whatever that I'm interested to know, do you think it's blunting their ability to connect with folks in a real world? So this topic comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that there is, that there's good data on that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The feedback I get from business leaders is that this sort of, the youngest generations as they're getting onboarded uh, need a lot 
need a lot of work um, as they're sort of brought into the office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe there's this suspicion that uh, because they were growing up in an environment where they were engaging so much uh, online or through texts, you know, where there's even less information there, less of the information that our brains are primed and ready to grab onto, um, that that they may not, you know, might not have exercised it in exactly the way that it was sort of intended to be used. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there is such a thing in um, in neuroscience. There's a there's a, a powerful concept of critical periods. Okay, which are periods in development when <clears throat> our brains are primed to learn and develop certain skills, and they happen at different times depending on you know maturity of different systems in the brain and, and what your experience is and. You know, it's quite possible that uh, that that interacting on social media is somehow interfering with the, the normal development through that critical period. I'm interested. I just want to pivot just for a second, still on this idea of the social brain network. Um, there's a lot of different types of leaders and organizations. You know, you have technical founders. You know, you got these guys or, or gals that are just like, behind a computer writing code, right? And then they build some amazing technology. And next thing you know, they're thrust into a position of leadership. Right. Um, and that's happening at a rapid pace because of the proliferation, democratization of technology and how fast things are growing. Um, how, what would be your advice to, to these types of, of individuals that are entrepreneurs that are out there hacking it away? And before you know it, they've got to scale and grow a team um, just what you're talking about, go flex these muscles, go out there and, and create deliberate conversations. I mean, do you see something lacking there? I mean, cause a lot of these, some of these folks are, they're building things in their garage and then the next thing you know, it impacts the world. I mean, well, that was, that's what happened at Google. Uh, so, um, you know, this, there was a study called the oxygen project that, yes. um, done over about a decade ago. And, uh, you know, what they found is that, um, People, you know, the people who worked for Google, Googlers, wanted leaders. They wanted managers who were good coaches, who had a high EQ, who who would you know help them, uh, who were good communicators. And that's not who, in general, who who those uh, managers were. They were the good coders and, and engineers. And so, Google had implemented a, a sort of on-the-job training you know, exercise, basically a gym for for those folks to to really work out those those muscles in their brains. Uh, you know, I think that's one thing you can do. I mean, you know, the other would be you could hire somebody, right? Your go-between who's going to be that really effective, uh, you know, team player, and who's going to be able to connect with uh, the people on the team and to help them, you know, help them work together. Interesting, because Google, when you think about Google now, and that all the different books talk about the Google culture, I mean, they they seem that they're doing it really, really well. They have a lot of strategic alignment using things like OKRs or whatever, but they get everybody kind of speaking the same language and then they hold people accountable. Are there any other examples of companies out there that are just in your mind, like just really got it? That's a really interesting question. I think there there are many successful companies, Mm -hmm. right? The companies that I've done work with either through teaching or coaching or some, um, some research with them, they're kind of iconic brands, a lot of them. And I think that they, have been <clears throat> successful and continue to evolve successfully because they have um, brought in more and more of a culture of 
of connection, a culture of responsibility, and I think what's really important is shared values and purpose. So I, you know, I think, like, you know, for example, I'm teaching for Estee Lauder next week, and that, that's, that's very top of mind. It's very foremost mm-hmm. in the orientation of that company. I taught for Starbucks a few weeks ago. Very similar uh, mindset there, and so I, I, I see that being, you know, at Nike. I, I see that being pretty per- pervasive a lot of the best companies that are out there. And I think you'll see more and more companies adopt that. I think a, a, a big question though, Mike, is it's one thing for a huge, you know, Fortune 500 multinational company to have the resources to do that. And another for a, a small startup. Right. Where times, you know, you've got a, just a few people and they have to do everything and it's pretty high stress. Uh, and, and, you know, <laughs> it, it might be a very different kind of, uh, very different kind of environment to try to build that in, in a very intentional way. I mentioned this to you uh, previously, but, you know, I've, I have a startup and I've built a team of people that I've never met except for one person who had a previous relationship. But that's kind of the trend now because people are realizing I don't have to move. Yeah. Um, I could you know, I have engineers in Mexico and California or whatever. Um, maybe we could we talk for a minute about how to build rapport. Like it used to be like you and I could walk into a room or we'd meet, shake hands. We'd kind of have this, as my friend says, the first bite is with the eye. And you talk about in your book how first impressions are really important. So maybe we talk about first impressions and then virtual first impressions. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think one of the most important things mm-hmm. in interaction is is paying attention to the person that you are meeting and and that you're interacting with and looking them in the eye and and this is important for several reasons i mean one is that first of all we're very visual creatures um primates in general use vision more than any other sensory modality and because of that we actually communicate a lot of information visually that we're unaware of micro expressions on our faces you know Changes in blood flow to the face, flushing, people sizes, opening, closing, all kinds of things are going on. So, and our brains are picking up on that dynamically, and that helps to guide the conversation and the interaction. So, that's one reason why you need to really pay attention. And the, the second is that when we look, when we actually make eye contact with somebody, that tells the other person's brain that you're attending to them and you think they're important. And that also is, you know, I think important for guiding that conversation. And, you know, one final thing is that eye contact itself is really important for um, building trust and kind of turning up the social brain. And one way we think it does is by causing the release of a, a chemical called oxytocin in our brains that, that kind of gets us really in sync. And uh, so all those things happen quite naturally when we just kind of obey that, that, that number one rule which is, you know, look the person in the eye and actually pay attention to it. Huh. I, now let's talk about like in this virtual world, I'm sure we've all been on meetings where somebody's got this random camera over here or what are some best practices like for how to adjust your camera um, mm-hmm. or create an environment that's conducive for quick relationship building and, and, and gaining trust? Yeah, this is a, a big challenge. Um, <clears throat> for most people, there is an offset between where their camera is, which is typically at the top, <clears throat> excuse me, of their screen. Mm-hmm. But some people, even especially like a lot of these, these tech techies, will have an extra camera off to the side. So there, it's like you're, it's like I'm talking to you this way. Um, <laughs> that's about as awkward as it gets. You know, you get to see nice my ear. ear. 
So it makes it a real challenge. And, um, you know, it, what it means is that even in, in the best of circumstances, uh, if I'm looking you in the eye, I'm staring in the middle of the screen and not at the camera. And so what I suggest to people is to practice actually looking up at that green light, you know, at the top of your screen, at least occasionally. And in particular, when you want to convey something that's very important, mm. when you want somebody to know that, that they're valued and that you, you know, because you're paying attention to them. So that, that I think is critical. It's super awkward. So I'm like, I'm looking up at, you know, you feel like I'm looking you in the eye, but I'm looking at this little green light. Uh, it's even harder when you've got multiple people on the screen. So you might be talking to somebody down in the lower left corner in the gallery. But in order to look them in the eye, you have to actually look very uh, completely away from them. Mm. It feels from subjectively from your own perspective, it feels totally wrong. But from on their side, it feels like they're getting all of your attention. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, I think it's something you can practice. I think it's something that you can get pretty good at. Uh, but it takes repetition. Uh, and it's something that, because it doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel right at all. So you, you're, you've been dealing with big multinational companies. And there's a lot of decisions being made right now about, you know, it's this pandemic now that we have vaccinations available. Um, people are getting to have the opportunity. Do you want to come back to work? Um, what are your feelings? Where do you think people are going to end up? Do you think that people are going to end up going back to work? <laughs> it's a, it's really interesting uh, right now. It's such an interesting dynamic. Um, most employers, I think, want people back yep. because they, they, they understand that um, you need to have people in the same place, at least a good chunk of the time, mm -hmm. to boost innovation, to build a, a consistent culture where everybody has you know shared values and feel like they're they're part of the team on the other hand <clears throat> a lot of workers the majority of workers want to stay at home at least some of the time because they value their autonomy they get more independence with their time you know they, they don't commute things like that so that's understandable too but there's a tension <laughs> right between <laughs> you know management and labor if you will and so there's going to have to be a solution. I don't think it's going to be a one size all, you know, fits all solution. Some companies will have everybody back. Mm -hmm. Some companies, you know, like Twitter has said, well, you can work wherever you want, remotely, you know, to, to their employees. And some will be, I think, where most will be, will be in the middle, which is, is giving some flexibility uh, to some people some of the time, but making sure that you have people in place, right, where they can interact, where they can bump into each other, where they can uh, have those impromptu conversations. And, you know, when when called upon, they can actually have, you know, spitballing sessions that, you know, I, I have yet to hear of a really great, uh, you know, kind of creative uh, meeting uh, that's happened online. I think it's really difficult to do. Um, I call those constructive collisions. Yeah. <laughs> right. What do you think about these, you know, environments like office arrangements? So uh, there was a trend, you know, in the late early 2000s or sorry, 2010s. My goodness, I'm dating myself. Uh, <laughs> where, you know, it was kind of everything's going to be open out in the open. Or if you went to the Bloomberg building, it was just yeah. like there are no offices. What do you think about that? Like to create a better corporate culture? 
<sighs> you know, it's a great question. I, I prefer that kind of setup. And that's how my lab is designed and, and basically all the labs that are, you know, that, that are here uh, in this building. And <clears throat> I think in normal times, that was really great. I mean, it's, it's you know, people, it, as much as people are, you get a lot from an energy from being around other people and, and you learn from each other. It can be distracting too. So I think you have to have some way of when you need it being, um, uh, just being able to, to seal yourself off. So I think headphones are you know, a good way to do that. That's what we do. But uh, I, I think it's going to be really interesting. And I think that there are some people are going to remain very anxious about their health mm-hmm. for a long time. Uh, and other people, it's going to be the exact opposite. And if, you know, I can kind of like, based on what I saw, you know, this past weekend in Philadelphia, where it was kind of like, Half rager, you know, half people uh, running away from the rager. It was was pretty remarkable. I think that's what we're going to see kind of in the office, too. Some people will embrace it and some people will, you know, they'll still be wearing masks years from now. I moved from Virginia to Texas during the pandemic. Texas is my home and I hadn't lived back in the state. Anyway, so... I'm in Virginia talking to a friend of mine and I said, Hey, I wonder what, you know, we're kind of daydreaming. I wonder what the pan- it's going to be like when the pandemic's over, you know, he goes, Oh, just, just wait till you go back to Texas. And I got back. I'm not saying right or wrong, that it was just a different feeling. And, and, and I was a little, you know, shy for a little bit. And then I, you know, got comfortable again, but I can see that. And I think we need to be conscientious of other people's uh, feelings and thoughts. Cause this has been a very traumatic you know, it's going to be 18 to 24 months for people. Um, but yeah, that's that's very... It's just something that's top of mind with me right now. Because as I think about my team, I'm thinking, you know, we're so young. We need to be in that room together to have these, you know, great discussions. I can go knock on somebody's door and be like, hey, Julia, you know, what do you think about this? It's hard. Like, hey, can we get on a Zoom call? You know, Slack, you know, Slack's great, but there's nothing that for me that replaces human to human interaction. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I, you know, I, I see it, I feel it here with my own team. Um, some people want to be back. Uh, people, it's going to take a lot more time to get comfortable. What is clear is that um, <clears throat> the collaborations that we used to have aren't happening. Mm. It's because people are, you know, they're in the ultimate silo. They're at home. So this creates opportunity and it's also a risk for some other people. It's something that needs to be an alert and other people like, Hey, this is a time to accelerate and to move forward. Yeah, I don't, again, it's not going to be a one size fits all, but there is, I think a concern um, there about equity, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Because, um, you know, some people will be less comfortable. Some people will embrace it. Uh, we know that certain neurodiverse, <clears throat> neurodiverse populations, uh, people who have social anxiety, for example, uh, have been really happy uh, to be at home because that, you know, that removes that kind of constant stress that mm-hmm. they would have in their, um, in their workplace. And so I think that that, again, brings up issues of how, how to accommodate. And I think it's going to be really tricky. Because, uh, you know, I talk about this all the time with a lot of people, uh, like how do you create an office environment where some people are 
some people are there and some people are virtual, right? The only thing I think of is those little, you know, those, those sort of uh, video conferencing robots that, that move around and has a screen on the top. I was just thinking this, like you're going to be at a board table, there's going to be a camera or a screen for, for so-and-so and everybody else is going to be there and you're just going to have to be okay with it. Or they'll be up on the right. board. Um, this is really interesting. You you have some interesting ideas and thoughts in here on, and this is a big pivot here, but on um, ADD and creativity. And I just thought this was fascinating. Could you talk about that for a few minutes? Sure, sure. So um, actually, one of the big, um, I think, the points of this book is when we stop thinking about brains, differences in brains as like, you know, better or worse, or like you've got a disorder and, and I've got a normal brain. Uh, there's this variation is there for a reason, right? And it, it, there's probably good evolutionary reasons why we see such, you know, you know, differences like we call attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Why does it occur at such a high frequency in the population? That, that goes well beyond what you would expect just from kind of random mutations. It's mm-hmm. collective evolutionarily for some or some good reason. And what we think and what uh, I think the biology um, suggests is that um, people who have that uh, phenotype, that way of thinking, right, that the sort of exploration circuits in their brain are turned way up, whereas this kind of focused uh, execution parts of their brain are turned down. And, you know, there could be environments, there could be situations where that makes perfect evolutionary sense, right? And in fact, um, that's been observed, for example, in a, a tribe in Africa where uh, that, that are nomadic herders, and they have a mutation in a gene that here in the West is implicated in, in ADHD, and it occurs in like five times the frequency in this, in this tribe. Hmm. And it's interesting because they make their living by exploring, by constantly being on the move and looking for new resources. And uh, and what's interesting is that when folks who have that mutation move to villages and, and towns to take up a sedentary lifestyle, they don't do so well. And that's kind of like kids with here in this country, kids with ADHD, and you put them in school where they're supposed to sit still in, in one place, you know, all day long. That is fighting against their natural inclinations and talents, I would argue. Mm. Um, you, you know, so... The, it, it's just really interesting that this sort of like get up and go circuit, go look for something new, which is primed in those folks, seems to be the same circuit that's involved in creativity. That is coming up with new ideas, you know, thinking outside the box, divergent thinking, kind of all go together. And, uh, you know, it, it, once you begin to think about differences in that way, it opens up whole new possibilities, right? So, you know, there is, um, there's a talent shortage, uh, believe it or not, uh, in, you know, out there, and it's going to get worse. Uh, so we hear from all of the, the sort of recruiters uh, mm. out here. Uh, and it's really hard for companies to find um, the people that have the talents to for the jobs that they, they need to have done. And so there's a real opportunity here to make a match. If we can understand that, like, oh, people with ADHD kind of have a superpower, which is being potentially being really creative out of the box thinkers. Right. We could understand how to identify and measure that, um, that characteristic, you know, that capability. 
more precisely rather than asking a doctor to weigh in on it or a parent or a teacher, then there's a way to kind of, you know, to kind of uh, make it a win-win right. for, for companies and for people, for workers, right? You get, the company gets a person who's better at the job, person gets a job that's a better fit for them, they're happier, everybody's happier and makes more money, right? right. So that, like how it should work out. People are fulfilled and they're not like put in a square peg, you know, it's or this, this like, you know, you're very unconventional. Now you're going to be stuck in this conventional environment all the time. That would drive you nuts, like right. completely nuts. And then, Oh, well they're agitated. Well, of course they're agitated, you know, cause that that's goes against who they are as a person. Um, in your book, you talk about how to create the environment or the conditions for creativity. Could you talk Absolutely. about that for a second? Yeah, so, so, so thinking about creativity. So, so first of all, we just discussed how that, you know, some people are a little bit more creative, some people are a little bit more focused, you know, getting, getting tasks done. Uh, but we understand that that reflects the balance of two separate but interacting circuits in the brain. One that um, is this sort of innovation exploration network, the other which is kind of focus and, and get the job done. And uh, in any of us. You know, when one of those is up, the other one is down. Mm -hmm. right? So uh, in order to think outside the box and be creative, you kind of need to turn up that innovation network. But the only way to do that is disengage from routine tasks. So like being chained to your computer and you know, typing, typing in Excel spreadsheets or answering, you know, boring email. That's the worst thing you could do for creativity because you have to disengage from that to... Uh, allow your your innovation network to to become active, and we also know now um, again a lot of these dots are circumstantial that we're connecting, but um, that literally getting up and moving around, walking, going for a walk, but even just moving uh, seems to promote activity within that brain network. And we know that if you get up and you walk around, go for a walk, you'll come back, you'll actually be a little bit more creative, a little bit more innovative. Than if you had been sitting there um, <laughs> drudging away. <laughs> so, do you create time or space in your day or week for just creative time? Like this is this is blocked out where I'm not going to do anything but just let my mind drift. Or yeah, I mean, I so let me I can answer that in a couple of ways. Okay. I mean, so I you know I used to do more of that in the cr kind of creative thing, like you know I would put aside time to play guitar or something like that, but. But the things that I do that are, you know, a commitment every day, mm -hmm. it's called while I'm at work. I probably only work for 20 minutes at a time when I get up and I walk around. I'm just up and about. You know, I, I, I have trouble sitting still for a long periods of time. So I'm kind of on that like more ADHD side of the spectrum. And then, uh, you know, and then I exercise every day. And that's a time when, you know, you're, I mean, on the one hand, you're sort of focused, but not really. It's like you're out there. Yeah. And usually walking back and forth to my office. So I, it's about a mile and a half each direction. Mm -hmm. When I'm walking, and I know this, it's like I'm walking and suddenly ideas are just coming. I just have to grab my phone and dictate into it and know <laughs> what's, what's coming up. And I've had, honestly, like most of my best ideas. And when I need an idea, I'll go for a long run or something like that. Hmm. Go for a bike ride. Very interesting because my workouts are the uh, is when everything comes to comes to fruition. 
I'll be training and then I just like, oh my goodness. And I have my phone. I'm not that person that's on Instagram or whatever. I'm just writing down all of my thoughts and ideas. And it's just, it's just flooding out that I I just found that so fascinating. And I, cause I think other people will, this will make sense to them now. And, you know, my picture in my mind is you think of that mad scientist or that brilliant mathematician and they're what pacing back and forth in front of a chalkboard, you know, working through something, mulling it over in their mind. Um, yeah, so I, I will make one more remark yeah, because yeah. when you're talking about working out, and it's like the difference between um, me and my wife when we work out. And she's a wonderful person, you know, awesome scientist in her own right. But like when I work out, the only thing that's happening is there's music in the background. What kind of music? Uh, it really depends. Um, but I'm a hardcore fan of WXPN, which is um, which University of Pennsylvania's um, rock station, basically. So okay. it's a real mix of them. Uh, but I, I often will go really hardcore, uh, you know, like 70s hard rock or, or you know, kind of um, maybe like Southern alt rock country now, uh, you know, like drive-by truckers or something like that. But um, but she's the opposite. So she, she will have, you know, an iPad on the bike or whatever and is watching the show or a movie and it's like just doesn't compute for me because for <laughs> me i just this is my time to completely lose myself disconnect not get engaged in something but get completely disengaged from everything right so interesting how different we all are and how the, but these different coping or mechanisms create relief and enjoyment for all of us yeah absolutely so um, something else that you do is you're involved. I mean, you, you're involved in a lot of things at uh, at Penn. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, but you're involved in marketing. Yes. And this is this is super interesting to me because the way that we, you know, people think of the word sell and it's a you know bad word. No, people like to be sold. Um, and if there's not an exchange of you know, money for goods, then the whole economy collapses. So I love the idea of marketing. I love, you know, can we talk a little bit about like just some of the science behind what's going on behind in our brain going on in our brains during this process? And then as you see technology changing and the platforms that we're selling and and trying to deliver our value proposition to our customers to like what's happening and what are them some things, maybe some people can take away from this, from this conversation. I mean, well, well I, I'm, I'm a proud member of the marketing department. At yeah. The so that's, uh, it's, it's really a great place with awesome people. And I, I learned a lot um, being, you know, having been a part of that department for a few years now. Uh, yeah. Mar- marketing is super interesting, right. Um, and branding and, and the ways in which we create an identity for a product, you know, and, um, and the company behind it and how you get people, you acquire customers and then keep them right so that's sort of the whole that's the whole process and uh you know what's interesting is that um a lot of that process has to do with how we relate to one another and it's about taking that equation and translating it or shifting it to the brand okay so the the, and there's actually this this kind of long-standing idea that um kind of knows the relational hypothesis in marketing which is that we relate to brands and the products that we love, like like they were another person, like they're a member of your family, and and that we use words, human words, like personality words, to describe brands. You know that's weird because they're 
you know, you say, oh, it's a rugged brand, or it's a smart brand. I mean, it's not a person, right? It's a, it's a, it's a concept, right? So, and it's a company that's trying to make money. But nevertheless, we, we do those things. And, um, you know, we got really interested in this idea. And so we, we, we use neuroscience tools to, to look under the hood to basically see what was going on in people's brains while they were responding to news about uh, brands. And um, it was really fascinating because and we, we looked at basically Apple iPhone users and Samsung Galaxy users, and they were, they were reading good and bad news about both brands. And what we found is that the brains of Apple users looked like they were hearing news about somebody in their family, like somebody they love. So they just joy and pain you know, in response to good and bad news. And, and, it, and it, you know, was so close to them that it was an extension of their, themselves in terms of the brain response. And that's not what we saw in the Samsung <laughs> Galaxy customers. It's kind of like not really much of a, of a, of a social, you know, emotional bond uh, with Samsung. Um, the only thing we saw was a, a sort of reverse empathy like this this hatred of, of apple uh in the, in the brains of users. so which i think you know when you when you step back makes a lot of sense right so uh they, they do seem to be very different kinds of customers with a very different kind of relationship uh to the brand the samsung customers maybe it's a little more um i don't know functional and, and transactional uh you know that that can um give you some insights if you were a third brand coming into the market, you, you wouldn't try to, you, you're never going to get the, the iPhone brand, you know, users, those customers are going to stick with Apple forever, most likely, because it got such a tight bond, but, um, but maybe easier to pluck those, those, you know, Samsung Galaxy customers, for example, but marketing, you know, I think overall is probably the area, it, it's the area, it, it is the area where historically neuroscience has sort of had the, the, the earliest foothold uh, mm-hmm. in terms of business. Because I think it was pretty, it's pretty straightforward to think of ways in which you, you can add a complementary uh, source of data to what people say, right, in terms of what they're thinking and feeling, and then actually measuring that directly and use that, for example, in A-B testing ads. So you could identify ads or, or um, principles of ads, you know, different creatives that are, that are bit more engaging, um, that, you know, create a stronger impression uh, you know, so so there, that that's been a very effective strategy. Mm. Um, you know, that's one reason why we now know that ads can be com- compressed. Ads actually can be more powerful because the human attention span is not very long. So you're saying and just very short in duration. Very short, right? Yeah. So now we see these six second ads. You know, it turned out and there, were, there were a number of studies showing that like first impressions matter a lot, and then kind of the you know as the ad goes on, people's brains you know aren't aren't as engaged and so you could actually, use, in fact, you could use that approach as a tool to to moment to moment kind of compress the ad so that you just had the, the maximally most interesting and engaging um, you know, uh, parts of it and not waste your time. Like, think of it, you're going to, if you're going to spend money on a Super Bowl ad, right? how much does that cost? <laughs> the shorter is better. That's, that, you know. Yes. That's a win, right? So there's, you're talking about these like emotional feelings people have about a brand. I think it was Marty Neumeier. Uh, he wrote he wrote the book, um, oh, the brand flip, and then something else. But he said that it's like a gut reaction that you have, like to a to. It's not a people think it's a logo or it's not. It's like this. Like when I see the Jumpman, 
for the Jordan brand. I feel invincible because as a kid, you know, growing up in the 90s, Michael Jordan, you know, I mean, he was invincible. And so even today, I see that and I get this just exhilarating feel. Um, how can we how can we foster those feelings? Well, I think there's, you know, there's two parts to this. First, the first part is, is if you can, uh, if you can apply some neuroscience tools, mm -hmm. this can give you some deeper insight into what people are thinking and feeling in a way that sometimes people have difficulty knowing or, or being able to express, right? So there's often a disconnect in what people say and what's going on in their heads, which is what adds to a lot of the noise. Uh, you know, in in marketing research, I think. And so so that's helpful. But you still have to have creative, right? So you had to have somebody create that jump man. So I think that you you those two things have to work together. I mean, in, in the best kind of you know, from from my perspective, the best approach would be to combine combine those. So you okay. you 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 have neuroscience in house, and you use it in an iterated fashion to um, with creative to. To produce ever more uh, engaging and interesting and emotionally, um, you know, uh, triggering, uh, you know, images and creative. That's how that's how I would do it. And you know, the thing about neuroscience tools that, and I think that in the last decade has been just mind blowing, is that it's been shown multiple times that it, you can take a small focus group, like you know, two dozen people, mm -hmm. and if you measure their brain activity, you can predict sales across the entire market like millions of people really so that you know that's where it is, you're like wow that okay that's huge that is a major lift that you're getting uh you're able to put your focus group on on some serious steroids mm -hmm. you know get, get real uh predictive value out of it um in a way that you know is has in some cases been order of magnitude better than what you would get from traditional marketing approaches that are based on just asking people, you know, how much do you like this? You know, how much do you remember? What would you pay for it? You're going right to the source. Yeah, you're going exactly. So if you want if you want to know the truth, ask the brain directly. <laughs> Don't ask the person. <laughs> that is a great that's a great point. I love that. Um you know you're working at one of the most elite institutions in the world. And, uh, you know, the word, the term high performance comes up in business all the time, high performance teams, high performance leaders. And this podcast is all about high performance. What does high performance mean to you? It's a great question. I was just on, a, on a, our kind of biweekly call this morning. We're trying to build a high performance institute for sports and medicine. Uh, and That's what I did for 15 years. <laughs> yeah, I understand that challenge. Go ahead. Oh, it's really fascinating because you have people from the athletic department, people from school of medicine, uh, engineering, um, and it's it's and also from outside groups that are trying to do exactly that. So it's super exciting. Um, but it's it's you know maximizing your potential, right? So it it's 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 understanding what that potential is and closing the gap between where you are and where you you can be. And I think. Um, one thing that we are particularly cognizant of right now is the fact that there's sort of individual peak performance and then there's collective peak performance. So team performance is perhaps more critical now than, than ever before in many endeavors, whether it's in the office or in the military or in sports. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, sometimes what's peak performance for an individual is 
consistent with what it is for the team, but often it's it's the team. The team dynamics matter more than the collection of the individual yes. people. You know what I mean? So team chemistry is is critical. Uh, and you know, we've seen that in time and time uh, again, you know, going back to my favorite example is the 1980 you know, men's US men's Olympic hockey team, which you know were a bunch of college guys. Uh, you know, it would beat the Soviet Union, who were professional, you know, hockey players, the best in the world. And, you know, these college guys had great team chemistry. And that's why they won. And so um, that's kind of what we're, a lot of what our efforts are here is trying to figure out what is team chemistry, right? What is the real chemistry behind or the biology behind team chemistry? Mm. And that's that's really exciting because if we can figure that out, I think that's that's that will help us on the, you know, on the pitch. That'll help us on the, you know, on the field. Um, it'll help us in, in the office too. That's very interesting. I love that. Uh, so we talked a little bit about exercise, but what are things that you are doing personally to make sure that you are staying at your best and that you're, you know, closing that gap between what your potential is and then maintaining a high level of output? Well, I think, you know, there's several things. I mean, I think, um, I am exercising my brain every day. I, you know, I have a job that requires me to do that. So, so, uh, so I'm pretty engaged uh, in that. Um, and you know, for knowing myself, I have a lot of variety uh, in my days as well. And, and also, social connection is, is critical for health and, and vitality, and, and you know, for for um, you know, I think for performance. But if there's one thing that neuroscience has really taught us is is Critical, you know, probably goes beyond everything else we talked about. It's it's nutrition. It's just it's, well, it's nutrition and exercise. So, oh. physical exercise is not only critical for maintaining the health of your body, but also the health of your brain. And um, whether that's you know aerobic exercise or high intensity interval training or you know, even endurance, but it seems very clear that all of those have a positive impact on the brain. Uh, and you know, in the case of, for example neuropsychiatric disorders, that's as good as or better than uh, the best pharmaceutical treatment. Mm. Wouldn't you just rather, you know, exercise, feel good about yourself and, you know, and your, 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 uh, you know, your mental health is going to improve. So I do that every day. I mean, I'm a CrossFit um, junkie for 14 years. So I've been doing that for a long time. Uh, and that totally transformed my life because I was always a, a gym rat, but um, discovering CrossFit was like just that, that the intensity and the variety. Uh, so it really makes your brain work. Talking about a group dynamic too. You, it's the box. The box. Exactly. Yep. So I can see why you like it. I love it. And, and the other is, is what I eat. And so, um, you know, our, our brains are very hungry. Uh, they, they, they demand about 20% of the calories that we eat every day, but it's, it's not just calories that our brains need. They need specific nutrients. And, um, you know, the, the thing that the nutrients they really need are amino acids to make, uh, which are, you know, you can only get from protein uh, because those amino acids are the precursors from which your brain makes very chemicals that are very important for decision-making and learning and social interactions and dopamine and, and norepinephrine and serotonin. If you don't get those amino acids, especially in the morning, like after you fasted and slept all night and didn't eat anything, like the, what you put in your body first will have a big impact on your brain function for some time thereafter. And, you know, there's really compelling evidence that if you 
eat a really carb heavy breakfast, you know, you're not getting those amino acids and you're going to have depletion of some of those chemicals. So mm. it makes me, you know, for, for, first of all, I start every day with a protein shake, uh, whey protein, um, you know, so that's like, that's how I get going. But it also makes me think hard about like, and, and I'm always on my kids because it's like, of course, they just want to eat bagels and cereal or whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, you're going to be a wreck at school. You've got to get some protein. Exactly. Brain. I feel really good about what we're doing with our kids now. My wife, every morning, it's like either so it's it's protein and, and fruit pretty much every morning. Yeah, that's that's what yeah, this is great. I think I'm I'm very pleased. I'm really I'm pleasantly surprised that you brought those two things up because um, it kind of comes back to the in, in sports, we call them rudiments mm-hmm. or the simplistic mm-hmm. things that you can do. Or the, and those are the two like if you don't if you don't exercise and you don't uh, provide the right nutrients for your body, I don't really care what field you're in. There's going to be a cost. And it sometimes the cost is, is really, really high and we don't want to pay that price. Uh, somebody that's curious, and I, and I and I've come to see this a little bit more through our interactions. You're very curious, and I just love your brain, honestly, just how you think through things. Um, what are you doing right now to help you grow or expand your mind? Do you are there books you're reading, podcasts, or certain things that you dive into to help expand your mind? Yeah, I, I read. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's where I go. So, and I read a lot of different kinds of things. So I, you know, what are you reading right I, now? I'm reading uh, a book called The Overstory, okay. uh, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning book about trees, basically. So it's, um, and people who, uh, who it's like a, a bunch of different vignettes that, that then converge on a single kind of attempt to save uh, large, uh, you know, these sort of giant redwood trees that are thousands of years old. Anyway, it's a really fascinating revolution in the way we think about and there's lots of nonfiction books on this um or at least a couple i know of that revolution the way we think about trees and plants but trees especially which is that they are connected to each other in very similar ways to how we are connected to each mm-hmm. other they send communication messages to each other through the roots they actually give and receive kind of gifts of carbon uh depending on who needs it there's like charity i mean it's, it's really Kind of fascinating, and um, you know, I know it sounds all like Avatar, uh, but you know, it's like it doesn't. The more you understand about the world, it's like so much interconnectedness, and then even from a biochemical standpoint, I, when I remember when I took my a doctor, uh, one of my graduate school classes in biochemistry, I just walked away like just mind blown. Just, yeah. I just was like the organization of all of this stuff and the intercommunication. It's just, it doesn't surprise me. And now I want to go read this book on trees. What's it called? The Overstory. The Overstory. Okay. That's a fictional uh, account, but it, it grows out of, there's actually, there's actually a, a couple of nonfiction books. I think there's one that was just um, written up in the New York Times this morning called The Mother Tree or something hmm. like that. Interesting. Yeah. I, I've always had an interest in um, botany, and I'm a, I'm a gardener myself. So, uh, you know, I, I I maintain that passion. That's something I'd like to do a lot. It's it's a creative, you know, it's a really interesting, fun thing because you're nurturing something, but it's also like you're painting with plants, and uh, it, it it's a lot of fun. That is awesome. That is so cool. You're probably the first gardener I've met. In a while. That's really cool. Um, 
How can people find you, support you? Like, where can they get your book? You can get the book on Amazon okay. or Wharton Press, deeply on Amazon. Um, and they can follow me on, on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, those are, those are pretty easy or even just Google me. There's, um, there's a bunch of different, there's tons of videos and, and, and whatnot out there. So, um, I'm a prolific tweeter. Well, I'll be following. And Michael, I have really enjoyed spending time with you. It was serendipitous. I was following another neuroscientist. He tweeted about you. And I was like, okay, interesting. So I went over, I saw the book. I was like, I got to buy this. I purchased the book. And I was like, now nah, I got to get this guy on my podcast because we're going to have some great conversations. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. And I know that you really enriched the lives of those that listen today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed talking with you too. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. If today's podcast enriched your life in any way, please support The Blueprint by doing one of the following. If you're listening on an audio platform like Apple or Spotify, please subscribe. If you're listening on Apple, would you please leave us a five-star review and give us some feedback? Your feedback is tremendously valuable. Finally, if you watch us on YouTube, uh, subscribe and leave us some feedback. We'd love to know how to improve the show and which topics you're loving. But until next time, this is Eric Korn. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the web at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.